chapter eight, the plan with no escape. The leader who anticipates the failure of a bold plan and prepares for it will fail. In 204 BC, the Chinese general Han Sen led his army to a position near the camp of his enemy, the army of Chao. In sight of the fortified camp, he allowed his army along the length of the riverbank, placing their backs to the deep, swift waters. Sun Tzu, in his classic, The Art of War, relates the soldiers of Chao enjoyed a good laugh watching their enemies line up along the river. Then almost immediately, the army of Chao left its fortifications and attacked Han Sen army. With their backs to the turbulent water, Han Sen's men fought so fiercely they overwhelmed the army of Chao, put them to flight, and killed their king. After the battle, some of Han Sen's officers questioned his strategy. The general replied, It is written, Place your army in a deadly peril, and it will survive. Plunge it into a desperate strait, and it will come through safely. If I had not placed my troops in a position where they were obliged to fight for their lives, but had allowed each man to follow his own discretion, he would have suffered a rep. For three millennia, Chinese militaries have subscribed to the strategy of burning the boats and breaking the cooking pots. Acts which told their armies in effect, we have no plan B, fight or die. At Jamestown in 1606, Captain John Smith ordered the destruction of the ships which had brought colonists to the wild Virginia shore. They were set afire in Jamestown Harbor in full view of the townspeople. The flames devouring the decks and crumbling sails made irrevocable the decision to stay, make their home on hostile land, and begin building a country. My return to military analogies throughout this book is no accident. Many of my skills and attitudes about leadership originate from many years in the Army. At the same time, of course, I know a lot of tough-minded, high performers who never saw the inside of a military base. I believe strongly in the need of discipline which military training instills in individuals, which out, without personal discipline, we are little more than animals. A leader of self-imposed code of discipline commands the high ground to impose discipline on others and to lead, whether platoons or corporations, by more moral force. And make no mistake that much of being a high-performance superstar is leading yourself and others against a popular path of conventional wisdom. Many of strongest, many of strongest American presidents, Washington, Jefferson, Jackson, Lincoln, were tempered as young men in the fires of war. George Bush was nothing more than a rich preppy kid until he saw brave men die in war against dictatorship. Years later, the former Navy pilot still had the resolve to craft an unlikely alliance of Americans, Russians, Arabs, and Israelites to crush the armies of another dictator. The military trains you to be decisive, to quickly analyze, 
information and take action immediately. How else could I have made more than 55,000 business transactions during a 25 year career? During the Civil War, Union General George McClellan looked and talked like a consummate leader to bring the North to a quick victory. His men loved him. His army of the Potomac was larger than the forces it opposed, but he couldn't bring himself to make the decision to fight. He acted as if he didn't believe in his own abilities to conduct war. In business, I've said, you must act as if there are no limits to your abilities. Add to that, you must act as if failure is not an option. In the late summer of 1984, I sent Charlie Soledad to New York with instructions not to come back without bridge financing for our deal to buy Bow Valley, USA. He stayed 10 days and worked day and night negotiating with Citicorp, our bankers, for bridge financing, the Solomon Brothers, and Old Line Wall Street Brokers Firm to underwrite the required loans. It was years in, and as all the major players in this industry, their plates were full with bigger fish than us. I knew they'd, they'd be listening to our proposal very carefully and watching us closely for beads of nervous sweat. Investment lenders and, in, and use intuition too. So our strategy was to act from an irrevocable position of incredible confidence, as if the deal was virtually a given. The financing was fairly standard proposition. The chance of, to participate in that financing was a privilege, sweetened our potential for enormous profit. Accordingly, Charlie calmly paid Citicorp $250,000 and the Solomon Brothers $500,000 upfront just to look at the deal. That money, which would become part of the overall fee if they handled financing was non-refundable. Even in the 80s, $750,000 was an impressive sum and represented a huge portion of cash for Great Western to lay out, considering we only had about a million total in cash. And admittedly, this was a radical departure from the way I usually handle fees. But in desperate times, you got to do what you got to do. Imagine those button-down bankers, conservative by nature, perceived our level of confidence. Charlie had just pushed them to the table by hand them, handing them $250,000 in advance. Over at Solomon Brothers, meanwhile, we had gotten their attention as well. I can see them wide-eyed, rubbing their little palms greedily, saying, This must be a hell of a deal. For Pingit to plug down half a meal in advance, we better take a look at this coal deal. Look at that fat fee we might be missing now. Plus all those fees down the road. They must have been salivating on their pinstripes. But Charlie pushed even harder, acted as if he had no limits to his abilities. He told the bankers if they didn't act in 10 days, he was taking the deal to our bankers in the UK. 10 days, boys, or kiss it goodbye. But our banks were to the river. We had no backup. Our backs were to the river. 
Our bank in the UK, Samuel Montague, had already turned us down. We were fighting tooth and nail for the survival of this deal. The bluff worked and we got the financing. 85 million in short-term loans from Citicorp, underwritten by a takeout commitment by Solomon Brothers with bonds to be issued by early 87, 1987. The lesson is that you've got to plan and for and expect success. That means no backup plan, no rip cords, no fail safes, or you will fail. The finest high wire acrobat work without a net. The one, the only faint hearts are in the audience. In our opening tale, the Chinese commander knew that armies fight best on desperate ground with no alternative. The hungriest salesman closes the hardest. Facing death, the cornered animal is the fiercest. Returning to wisdom of Sun Tzu, the ancient strategist advises advancing generals not to press a desperate foe too hard or block a retreating enemy for he will fight to the death against any attempt to bar his way and is too dangerous an opponent. Look for ways to make your people dangerous opponents when the stakes get high by creating for them and yourself a level and an atmosphere of risk. This goes back of your comfort level for taking risks. No matter how many risks you take and how often they're still scary the only risks that aren't a little scary are the ones not worth taking. If you're experiencing no anxiety or occasional fear as you grow your business, the so-called risks you're taking are probably not worthy of you. Let's talk about dealing with fear. Fear and pain are related in that they're both signals you crossed a line beyond which your mind or body is not comfortable. Just as a blister creates pain, risk creates fear. They're both natural, primal responses. The trick to be comfortable in the presence of those responses. The athlete who learns to perform and win regardless of pain has raised his or her comfort level to deal with that pain. As a high performer, you must do the same with fear caused by risk. The fear never goes away. You, you just deal with it and become comfortable in his presence. Does Dan Pena feel a tinge of fear? Sure, he doesn't. He is ready when it is time to fish or cut bait. Damn right. I've told people for years I was born ready. But the reality is that I've trained myself by exposing myself to thousands and thousands of uncomfortable, even perilous situations. So I would be comfortable with my abilities when testing time came. I'm not unique. High performance individuals flourish in an atmosphere of conflict, crisis and trouble. In fact, progress often masquerades a trouble. As an aside, I avoid and detest bastardization of the words challenge and opportunity as synonyms or euphemisms for trouble or problem. When some cheery-faced office moron chirps, we've got a challenge to me. I want to throw up. <laughs> Did the captain of the Titanic, waiting in the seawater, discuss challenges and opportunities with his crew? 
Did Custer turn down his troopers at the little bighorn and say, Men, with regard to arrows, we have a challenge this morning. If you're in big trouble, have the respect for your executive staff to say, So without having a surcoat, it was a challenge, a sugar coat, <laughs> excuse me. We'll talk more about conflict in a moment, but now let's examine the relationship of strategy and structure in a high-performance environment.